I want to talk about one that's called the cumulative case approach. You can imagine what this one is. You take all the other views that we've talked about so far, and you put them in a Vitamix, and you hit go. <laughs> and it just all gets swirled around. So kind of everything is on the table. This is C.S. Lewis's approach. He falls in this category. G.K. Chesterton, if you know him, he falls into this category. And the idea behind this is you can't really have a formal approach you can't really have a plan of how these conversations are going to go because what what's the famous quote about war and battle plans no plan has ever survived contact with the enemy you have this great plan and then the moment the the conflict begins it all breaks down and all the unforeseen circumstances pop up and the thing you never expected happens and so what this view argues is these types of conversations are that way you need to have a whole bunch of stuff in your brain some of the philosophical arguments some of the evidentiary arguments some of the presuppositional you got to have all that in your brain and then you don't really have a plan you just have a conversation and you're prepared for uh, whatever happens and the what ends up happening in this view practically this isn't a positive or negative i'm just still describing the view what practically ends up happening with this approach is a lot of just look around aren't the results of christianity better than the alternatives look at broken families look at political discord look at uh, people's mental health look at their well-being isn't christianity just better and that's what this ends up being is kind of you that and then hey look at all this proof for the resurrection because the resurrection as it ought to be is kind of the the central linchpin of this type of apologetics which is basically if i get you to agree that the the practical effects of christianity are better than the alternatives and i get you to see all this evidence we have for the resurrection there is a unbelievable amount of evidence historically speaking that the resurrection of jesus christ happened we should be as sure that Jesus Christ was put in a tomb and came out of that tomb as we are about all kinds of events in history that get taught to us and to our kids in school as if they're absolute fact. We have a ton of evidence. We'll talk about that later. Um, but that combination, and again, it's not like that's the conscious approach. The approach is to have no approach. <laughs> but what ends up happening is kind of that one-two punch of, hey, isn't it better? Look at the results and look at all this proof we have for the resurrection. And if the resurrection is true, and, and this point is a, is a good one that we need to sort of keep in our, uh, our tool chest. If the resurrection is true, everything else should be easy to believe. Of all of Christianity's claims, people struggle with the talking snake in the garden, right? People struggle with the parting of the Red Sea. People part but if the resurrection is true, none of that other stuff should be really difficult to, to swallow. Um, so what does this approach have going for it? First, let's talk about the positives. What's good about this approach, especially as you compare it to the other ones, if you can remember back last week? Easily adaptive. It's adaptable? Yeah, very, I'm going to, adaptable, and I'll say it seems, I'm also going to, adaptable, I think, 
it seems approachable right, to all of us. Like, oh, yeah, I can do that. I'm just talking about my faith. It seems informal. It seems like it doesn't require a long class training me how to do it. Uh, it is adaptable. One other one I'd point... Well, does anybody have other ones? Because there's one other one I think is important to, to give it credit for. It advocates very specifically for Christianity. Remember, um, a lot of the other views kind of all they get you to is theism. That God is is more likely than that God is not. And then you're doing the argument that Christianity is the most reasonable form of theism. I like that approach. That's actually the approach I'll recommend in the end. I think that's a very successful approach. But it is cool that this one just plants its flag in Christianity from moment one and doesn't even fool with all those other forms of theism. Just, hey, look around the world. It's better. Uh, Now, that will really tie into the sermon well today because that argument, which I don't think is the argument we should lead with, but it is a valuable argument. The effect of Christianity on a person's life is better than the effects of all these other worldviews. Um, But what has to happen for that to be true? What does that require? If we're going to make the argument, look around at Christians, their lives are better the non-Christians. What desirable company? <laughs> I mean, the, the Christians that these people you're talking to that they know they have to be respectable. Christians have to live like Christians. Live Christians. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because if the only Christians you know are Christians in name only, and their lives look no differently from the world, that doesn't help your argument. One way or the other, right? If their lives are super successful financially and all this other stuff, and they happen to say that they're Christian, that doesn't help your argument. But more likely, it doesn't help your argument if they're just not delightful people to be around. Their lives don't have the aroma of Christ that Paul talks about in Corinthians. Um, What are the unintended consequences and the problems with this view? Focuses on self, like on people more than God. Mm-hmm. It could tend that way. Yeah, it runs that risk. Same as the one for evidentialist and, in my opinion, classical, classical, which is that you're putting God in the dock and asking humans to stand in judgment. On Isn't this reasonable, right? The God in the dock problem of we put God on trial and say, we will tell you whether or not we find your evidence sufficient enough. Um, yeah, it has all the same problems as the other views thrown in a Vitamix, and, right? Because that's what this view is. So you get the good of the other views, you get some unique goods, but you also get all of the problems with it. Um, and again, I, I, I want to reiterate what I said last week. We're not, we're not labeling all of these and talking about the different methodologies because if it comes from one of these buckets, you can't touch it and you can't go near it and you... When it comes to the practice of these things, they're going to look a lot alike. We're going to use a lot of the same information. But the starting point is what's so utterly critical. Because that will determine, if you can think way back several weeks now, the potential risks of having these conversations. Our starting point, what we think is most important, what we're actually trying to do and actually trying to prove and accomplish, will determine what compromises that we're willing to make. 
what is our ultimate source of authority in these conversations? That starting point is, is what's going to set the ground rules. So then we can borrow from all the views as long as what we're doing fits within the, the guidelines, the ground rules that we've established. You don't want to just go into these conversations and think, well, I'm talking about my faith. There's absolutely nothing that could go wrong here. There's quite a lot that can go wrong here. You, you can prove the opposite of what you're trying to prove. <laughs> you, you can put God in the dock and prove that you, somebody should believe in God because of you. Wow, you know why I trust God? Because that Pam, I mean, Pam is just on it. She just knows it and she convinced me and she just... Like, uh, do you believe in God or do you believe in Pam? <laughs> right? If Pam comes to you tomorrow and says, hey, that whole God thing, I'm going, I'm going Scientology now. Makes a lot more sense. Are you going with God or are you going with Pam? <laughs> uh, so we do have to be careful about those sorts of things. Questions about the cumulative case. And this may help you a little bit as you're reading C.S. Lewis, as you're reading Chesterton in the future. You can see that this is what they're doing. You can see this as their approach now that you know what it is. Just this idea of the impacts are so impactful and they're highly focused on the resurrection, which is not a bad thing. It doesn't, like, it doesn't sound like a bad thing. But without a, without a plan to tie those things together, uh, it, it runs into a real problem. And Lewis is especially funny because Lewis is very sensitive to the God in the dock problem. And yet I think his approach to evangelism... Yeah, he wrote the book called God in the Dock. Uh, But I think his approach to apologetics and evangelism is ultimately guilty of the very thing that he's concerned about. Do you think that's because he has an incredible testimony? He was an atheist prior. And so I think when you have something like that, right, I think you probably have that more tendency, right, to be in that cumulative state, right? Because you have a lot of these past experiences or somebody just grew up believing all their life. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I, th- I think that ties in with uh, you know, Megan's critique of the, the personal problem right. with this one, which is y- you, you should be excited and thrilled and exuberant about the manifestations in your life of God's power and change. I was addicted to drugs and now I'm not. I was in this sexual sin and now I'm not. You should be ecstatic about God breaking those bonds of sin for you. What you have to be careful about is that you don't equate that with salvation. That is a fruit of God's saving work. That is not the same as God's saving work. Lots of people break their drug addictions without coming to Christ. Right? And so you, you just, these good things, things that may be useful in the discussion. My own testimony may be useful in the discussion. But if I don't have an approach that says, well, now wait, i got to make sure I'm not just giving them faith in me or making it sound like this, this felt need in my life being addressed uh, I didn't have money and now I do, or I had this can and God cured me of it and I said I'd follow him forever. Like, that's not the faith we're calling people to. That can be a great, amazing thing. That's not the faith uh, that we're trying to call people to. Yeah, the trouble with that is you get into not, very good Christians don't have money. Very right. good Christians have got cancer, died, or kids. Yeah, I mean, you have to be so careful. Yeah, that's the, and what if he doesn't problem, right? Yeah. It's a bait and switch, too, because that's... 
Not what Jesus promises us. Mm. <laughs> Quite the opposite, right? Yeah, right. So, exactly. yeah that whole cross-bearing thing is a real bummer. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, will, you will experience trouble in this life. Yeah. <laughs> Don't be surprised. I know. I mean, that's, the, those literal words are in the Bible. Don't be surprised. And you have entire megachurches built up around the idea of people being really surprised that anything bad could ever happen to them. Other questions or comments about that one? All right. The other one, or the next one I want to talk about is... One quick comment. You should read C.S. Lewis. You get Don't take that away. Yes. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Uh, you should not follow their apologetic method, but you should definitely read them. And quite a bit about what they say will be useful in your faith conversations. Uh, yeah, it's a great corrective. They are absolutely brilliant people. All right, this is Reformed Epistemology. This one's just for Jake. I can't even spell epistemology, literally. The only reason I'm putting the fancy epistemology word on the board is because I do want to make the distinction for y'all that this is not related to Reformed theology. Reformed epistemology is a separate bucket. Um, These are people that most of you probably don't know and haven't read, right? So Alvin Plantinga, some of you who studied philosophy or in the reform world, you've heard of Alvin Plantinga. He's the philosophy of religion professor at the University of Notre Dame. Really brilliant guy. Uh, Kelly James Clark, Nicholas Walterstorff, um, those philosophical heady types are the ones that, that have this view. And I just want to explain what the view is, and I don't care if you ever know the terminology or the people involved. Their premise is this. It is reasonable to believe certain things without evidence. You can have a rational belief that does not require evidence. Now, we actually agree with that. Um, When Elon Musk says, how do you know that you're not living in a simulation? The answer is because it's rational to believe that we're not living in a simulation. There there could be no evidence for that. Um, You're not just a brain in a vat on somebody's shelf imagining all of this. And you don't need any proof for that. You're just allowed to believe that. Um, You were not created five minutes ago with the memory of everything that you think happened before that. Your life, as you remember it, actually happened. (laughs) Okay? Matrix. This is, <laughs> yeah, right. you, and, it is a little bizarre. And you don't, you don't have to have evidence, right? You're justified in believing that reality is reality. And what that's called philosophically is properly basic. Some ideas are so properly basic. They require no evidence, no proof, and yet you are still rational and justified to believe them. Everybody tracking with that conceptually. All right, so what the Reformed epistemology crowd says is that belief in God is a properly basic belief. Um, Everybody has within them a natural a logical, not anti-logical, but independent of logic. Every person has within them a mechanism for belief in God. 
God built us. He built us with a natural mechanism so that even apart from logic, we are aware of his existence. And therefore, we need no proof. We need no evidence. Um, you You can't prove God. God can't be proved. Therefore, it just has to be presented as a properly basic statement. Everybody clear on the view? Think, all right. What does this approach have going for it? Let's start there. That was true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> Romans 1. Uh. So they, kind of, they just think, like, you should just believe God is real. They would spend their apologetic conversation unpacking everything I just said teaching somebody the category of a properly basic belief, showing them that they already hold lots of other property basic, properly basic beliefs. And then a, a good one will spend time making the argument that if God were to exist at all, by definition, that would have to be a properly basic belief. Let me show you why. Therefore, what you're looking for in this conversation, which is some proof or persuasion or evidence that God exists, it, if I were able to provide that, that would actually undo the argument that God exists because God's not provable. It happens a lot in university classrooms. It does not happen a lot in Starbucks. <laughs> um, what else is positive about this? Yeah, it recognizes belief in God as a rational starting point. Like, that is a rational starting point. The God is, is more rational than the God is not. All the other views we talked about will desire to prove that. And they, the same basic assumption as the Bible. Yeah, on that is. level, God is. Um, I also think this view admits what most of the other views don't admit. People who are against classical apologetics would definitely say this is a failing of classical apologetics. I don't think it is, but... The view admits that rationality can't, all these other approaches to evangelism can't get you all the way there. They cannot ultimately prove God. They can prove that God is more possible, more rational, more likely, more, but they can't actually prove God. And the evidential view seems like it's trying to prove God from the evidence that exists in the world that it is absolutely the case a a strict evidentialist would recognize no I'm just proving that's the most likely scenario so it's good to admit that none of these approaches get you all the way there and that is presuppositionalism's concern with classical, is that classical seems to be making the case that when you put all of this stuff together, you can get people all the way there. Because you didn't start them with the presupposition that scripture is superior and all, all that we'll get to later. I don't agree with that. Like I said last week, it's just an order of operations question to me. You are actually doing what the presuppositionalists say you should be doing. You're just not getting the other person to acknowledge that because they can't. They don't have a category for it. Another part. Oh. Well, I was just going to say to me, it just seems to be what, we, what you feel about faith, right? I mean, that we are asked to have faith without evidence oftentimes, right? In certain situations, right? Well, we have faith that God exists, right? Yeah, believing that God will do what he says he will do. 
We have lots of proof that God has kept his word in the past. And we have God's word that he will never change. But it is humanly possible that even somebody who says they're never going to change, changes. So we have to believe that God is so categorically different that he cannot change because he said he won't. Some people really struggle with that where they, God just becomes a superhuman <laughs> rather than an actual God. Yeah. Can I ask another question about this? Yeah. So how would they go from like belief in God as a proper, properly basic belief to then the gospel? You're a step ahead. So what is the problem and unforeseen consequence with this view? doesn't have to get you to Christianity. Yeah. Right? In fact, it's satisfied only to show that belief in Christianity is rational, not that Christianity is the only true option. And I gave credit to the previous view for being Christian-focused start to finish. All the other views are not that type of Christian-focused start to finish, but they... But they get there. Like, they don't feel like their work is done if they haven't shown the superiority of Christianity. This view struggles to get there, except as a philosophical abstract concept. It also fails to acknowledge that someone can be rational and wrong. So all it proves is that you're rational to believe in God. It doesn't prove that you're right. Our littlest kids, are they rational to believe in Santa Claus? Yes. Yes. They have it on good testimony. They have, ev- they have evidence in their lives, right? Little kids are rational when they believe in Santa. Are they right? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? So it's satisfied to show that belief in Christianity is rational, not that it's the only true option, and it fails to acknowledge that one can be rational and wrong. Um, I did want to mention one other positive of these guys that I skipped over, which is the, the men and women who hold this view in the academy, like at that super nerdy university philosophy level, they kick butt. They're amazing, amazing scholars who are defending everything we want defended about truth as a philosophical concept in ways that their peers are not. These are the stalwarts against the postmodernism and the reconstruction and all of these other idiotic views about the nature of meaning and epistemology, which is how we think. So... I, w- I wanted to go do a PhD with Alvin Plantinga. I think the world of that guy. I'm not nearly smart enough. I mean, so can you start there and build you, with other You should not start here. No. Okay. You can. It wouldn't go well. Probably if you're Alvin <laughs> The appealing parts of this will show up in presuppositionalism. But you don't want to have this view because you end up as a philosophy professor or in a mental asylum. Like those. <laughs> so much of the apologetics in that formal field, if we just talk about 
I want us to talk about faith conversations and having faith conversations with people around us. But if you, if you talk about the history of apologetics and evangelism in the church and in Christian universities, just kind of as a, as a distinct field of study, what has happened here, the last 30 or so years have really all been about responding to people saying that faith is irrational. This idea that faith and reason are so far apart and that not, not the kind of faith you're talking about, which is I believe because God said, but I believe because I believe. Period. I just believe because I believe. I believe in belief. I believe in believing in things. I believe in what? what? Right? What does believe mean at that point? That's the accusation against Christianity and against religion in general. And for a lot of other religions, that accusation is a reasonable death blow. You cannot look at Scientology and say, yes, I can make a reasonable and rational defense for this. You really, you look into what it says and what it teaches you. You are suspending your rational faculties. Christians in the church, we were so unprepared for that level of critique and that level of attack on our religion. We were not prepared for all of the television channels and the media to start doing the Christianity's not real Easter specials and the here's the false gospels and the, like we we didn't see that coming. And so when it hit and it hit hard, Christians got really insecure. Oh, does does my faith have an answer for this? Do do, do I have a way to respond? And so all of the apologetic emphasis in the church and in the academy, which feeds the church, became about, not exclusively, but a lot about that. we got to help people be prepared to give a rational defense for Christianity. And that's good. It is good that people in the church be confident that we have answers to these questions. And it's good that people in the church wrestle. You know, as many jokes as I make about Y'all, y'all who didn't have to take philosophy classes really lucked out, or you're smarter than us because you didn't sign up for them. There is a certain level of philosophy and logic that all of us need to understand and wrestle with. And, and if you say, I'm not wired for that, you are wired for this because you are made in the image of God. And God is a rational being. <laughs> and so you can get this level that I'm talking about. So that's a really good thing. What it came at the expense of was, I mean, you think about a book like The Case for Christ. You think about some of the evidentialist books that became so popular in the church that are good books when they know their place in the process, when you're clear about what they prove and don't prove. Um, They're really problematic when people think, bam, there you go, God, I just defended you. Look at all these facts I laid on the table. I defended God. Well, then God's still on the dock. You're just his defense attorney rather than his prosecuting attorney. Right? You got to get God off trial. You got to you got to conceptually uh, reorient people to the idea that the kind of God you're arguing for, which you will argue for, you will use philosophical arguments for, you will show evidences for, but the kind of God you're arguing for is beyond that. Does not need your huh huh. How about this guy? Right? Doesn't need it. He. What, what, when God gave his name to us, 
God has lots of titles in the Bible. But when the question is, who should I say sent me? When I have to tell the world, the pagan Pharaoh, who my God is, what name did God use there? I am that I am. What? What does that mean? Exactly. (laughs) I need no defense. I need no introduction. I need, I don't need it. You tell him, I said so. See, right, we, we know this as parents, right? You know, one kid said, well, you're going to fold the clothes. You tell him, I said so. Ugh. Mom is what she is. We best fold the laundry. Right? That's the part we can't lose sight of. So we do want to pull in the best of the philosophical arguments like this one. This is a really good one. We do want to pull in the best of the evidentiary arguments. That's a really good one. But our starting point, our guide rails, all that stuff is going to matter a ton So that in the end, whether we think the conversation, humanly speaking, was successful or unsuccessful, what we will have defended was actually God. And we will will have honored God in the conversation regardless of what seems to us the human outcome. The evidentiary arguments can be very, they'll give you a very clear human outcome. The person will either tell you they agree and believe this evidence you've given them, or they think this is a bunch of nonsense and you watch too much Fox News. Whatever, right? You'll get a very clear answer from them. But that answer will not reveal whether or not the person actually has faith. Right? It's two different things. Um, it seems like a way to almost begin in the conversation is I don't need to defend God. You know, because you remove being on the defense, right? And, in a way, you know, but And what the presuppositionalist view will do is exactly that, but instead of defending it with a philosophical construct, it defends it with scripture. That's the real difference. And then you can pull in the philosophical construct later, because it's helpful. You can pull in the evidence later. But that idea, why don't I need to defend, because he said so. And you see how if I'm claiming, and this is what we'll get to in the next few weeks, if I'm claiming that God is the ultimate authority, I don't expect this answer to satisfy you, Mr. Unbeliever, who's having this conversation. I totally get why you're going to hate what I'm about to say. But if I'm saying God is my ultimate authority, then however many questions we answer and just go up and up and up, why, 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 wherever I start, why, 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 at the end of all the whys is God said so. That's the best answer I got. Because if I had any other answer than that, then God isn't supreme. God's second. He's second to whatever that other answer is. And that's what presuppositionalism will keep coming back to. And even as a classical apologist, I agree with that. I simply disagree on the order of operations. And, and that even though that's what you're doing all along, that's not necessarily what you have to say you're doing from the outset. And we can, we'll talk about that as we go through it. And, and Jake will call me out on my inconsistencies and uh, total failure to apply this. No, go ahead. Uh, the, the, the sad part about what these guys have done, they've done a lot of good, and I appreciate it, is that when their philosophy runs up against the scriptures, they tend to lean into the They pick their philosophy. So the Trinity becomes not the ground of Christianity. It becomes a problem because it's philosophically tough right. to get past yeah. the one and the three. You see that, yeah. Where you start is where you'll end. That's why where you start is so important. 
That's why in a class where all I'm trying to do is get good Christian people to be more comfortable having faith conversations, we're down this rat hole of philosophy and the history of approaches. Because where you start is where you will end. And when you start with properly basic philosophical constructs and you run into the Trinity, mm, I don't have a theological construct for that and I don't think you can argue the Trinity is properly basic. Nobody does. I'll just say it that way. Nobody argues that the Trinity is properly basic. Nobody argues that we have a built-in faculty within ourselves to recognize intuitively the existence of the Trinity. Not a thing. Um, And so the people who start with evidence, where do they end with? Evidence. And the presuppositionalists, greatly to their credit, say you have to start with Scripture so that you can end with Scripture. Because Scripture is the... Your physical Bible is not your God. Okay? The book itself is not what I mean when I say Scripture. I mean the words in it, which are God's perfect revelation of himself. Jesus, it's it's easy for y'all to... It's easy for all of us to get this because of the incarnation, that Jesus was the exact imprint of his nature. So when we say Jesus, the exact imprint of the nature of God, that even though Jesus is distinct, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are made of the same stuff. They are God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Word is the exact imprint of God's nature. This is the perfect revelation of God. God. So when we say scripture's at the top of the pile, that's actually more precisely correct than saying God is at the top of the pile because this is how God revealed himself perfectly to us. Had God chosen to reveal himself through a puppet show, we'd have to put the puppet show at the top of the pile. God revealed himself through the word. And then when the word became flesh, the word dwelt among us, and the word was the exact imprint of his name, right? And then you get the, uh, is it Peter? I think it's Peter who says, because we all tend to think, man, you know what would make Christianity a lot clearer, a lot easier? Is if I got to live when Jesus was alive, right? And like Jesus was walking with me, like that, oh, that'd be so much better. It'd be so much easier. Peter says you're wrong. Peter says that God sent the Holy Spirit and that you have the Holy Spirit in the Word of God is better. It's more clear. It's a more sure testimony. The combination of Scripture plus Spirit is a more sure testimony than if Jesus was standing next to you. All right, let me see what i got to get through here in this last paragraph. So the last few I'm going to talk about, starting next week, is the right one. <laughs> Presuppositional <laughs> apologetics. Yeah, yeah. It's on the recording, right? And it's funny that I say that because, as I've made clear, I agree with the with the classical approach. But really, it's an on paper thing to me. And the reason why I'm not teaching you all from the perspective of pure classical apologetics is because I think on paper the presuppositionalists do have the right emphases, and it's this: where you start is where you finish. You've got to have that at the forefront of your mind. I think we've got a little more freedom in applying that. But you do not have freedom in what must be at the forefront of your mind. In what am I attempting to prove and defend? 
Um, it's the presuppositional view emphasizes a very important question that if we don't think about it carefully is easy for us to overlook for all those reasons we talked about weeks ago we want to be agreeable we know these conversations are hard and we want people to feel good in them we want a positive response we want to feel like we were successful all of that stuff is just driving us to go along to get along Take the most combative person you know. I promise you, in a genuine faith conversation with an unbeliever, every fiber of my being wants to make it easy for them. Every fiber of my being wants to sell the farm if I just get a good response from them. I will give up all of it if I could just make them feel good about the conversation and make me feel like I had a positive effect on that conversation. And so if you don't have this front and center, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. You can really end up in some tricky places no matter how you're wired. So the question that I want you all to be chewing on for the next week as we prepare for presuppositional, I'll say it two different ways. Can you prove the supernatural, inerrant, ultimate superiority? Can you prove the ultimate superiority of the Bible using human reason as the foundation of your argument. Can you get from a human reason starting point to an infallible, inerrant, supreme, ultimate scripture? Or, if the superiority of the Bible is going to be the conclusion of our argument, in what ways should it also be the foundation? I know that's where I'm trying to get. Scripture, God's revelation. What does that say about how I need to begin? And whether you come down as a true presuppositionalist or a pseudo-wannabe presuppositionalist classicalist like me, that's the question we've all got to reckon with. What does that ultimate allegiance to Scripture require of us on the front end? Questions about that? What do you say to the person who says, yeah, but Paul, people aren't saved by inerrancy. <laughs> you don't have to get them that far. That shouldn't be our goal. All we got to do is get them to the cross. I would say to that person, everything you believe about the cross came from where? Everything you're going to communicate to this person about the truth of the cross came from where? So which is more basic to their understanding? The truth of the cross or the truth of the source that will tell them about the cross? Now that may not be the best response to it, but that is what my response would be. Is I, where do I go to learn of my sin other than scripture? Like, I can understand from nature itself that I am a sinner. That much becomes clear to all unbelievers. But why do I feel that way? Why do I feel weight of my own guilt when I do things that are wrong? Scripture's got to tell me that. What can I do about that? Scripture's got to tell me that. Now, I don't mean you have to have a conversation about inerrancy preliminary to every conversation about sin and repentance. And this actually 
to me, makes my point about why I think classical is right. It's an order of operations question. Nothing I'm doing with this unbeliever, talking about sin and repentance in the cross, makes any sense if scripture is not without error. But this may not be the moment for that conversation. That will have to come, and at some point I will have to show them that one without the other wouldn't have worked. But presuppositionalists make me assert that one boldly on the front end to sort of show my work before I begin, which is not wrong. And given the right conversation and the opportunity, I will do that. That person has to actually believe the truth of God, whether they know it or not, in order to accept their need for repentance and to receive Christ as Savior. So, order of operations. So, are you saying that uh, you lead with an errancy of Scripture and not the cross? Like, in this? Uh, we'll talk about approaches. I think it's conversation by conversation. If I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe Scripture at all, I'm not going to start with inerrancy, but there may be several moments in a conversation with them where, even without using that term, I do have to talk about believing the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. That this is how God revealed himself, and so God doesn't, he's not a trickster, and he's not wrong, and he's not dumb. Therefore, he is capable of revealing himself perfectly, exactly as he intends to be revealed. And that's why we can say Scripture is perfectly true. And the great news about that is, that means whatever Scripture says to us about salvation, I don't have to wonder, is this right? If, if this is the word of God, of God, I can know 